0: is what we want. And when we have this sermon series that's entitled Growing in Maturity, we are saying that over and over and over again, because maturity means to be Christ-like, to be shaped and molded on an ongoing basis into the image of Jesus Christ. It's something that we are always growing into. It's never done. Regardless of our age, Christ is always working in our hearts and souls and minds to reflect what we would say uh, here at Elmhurst Church to be Christ's shining light and source of living water. Growing in maturity, Um, theologically people call it sanctification. It's an ongoing process, and James has talked about it at two levels. One is at an individual level. We need to look in the mirror and try to figure out where are we in terms of reflecting the image of Christ, and where are some growing edges for me, and then secondly, as a community of people. What does it mean to be the body of Christ who's seeking to reflect the image of Christ to everyone that we meet and everyone that we encounter regularly as a group? So today we're going to continue in that vein and we're going to focus on um, another concept that James raises in chapter 3 and verse 18. A day in the life. I got up, I did a brief workout, I showered, I ate breakfast, I quickly greeted my children, and my spouse, and then I rushed out the door. Traffic was a mess, and I was running late for my first meeting of the day, which meant that in my jam-packed schedule I would then be late for every meeting the rest of the day. I was gonna hope I was hoping to get home in time for the kids' program at school, which started at seven o'clock, of which there were two this week, along with three other ball games and a dinner meeting with clients at one night. Business is touch and go. There's some talk around the office about cutbacks and changes. I'm not sure what that means. We might be bought out. And I know that that puts us in a tenuous position, and so it always hangs like a dark cloud over my head. Money is tight. Our family expenses are not decreasing, and college for our kids is right around the corner. My spouse and I are like ships passing in the night. We both have very demanding careers. And we, we know that we should connect more, but I'm not sure how that can happen. Not only do we have our own family, our own children, our own careers, but we also have parents who are aging, who have their own needs that we try to meet on a regular basis. Plus, there's always something that needs to be done around the house. Sunday is supposed to be a day of rest. But after a church, there always seems to be a never-ending list of things that have to get done, of running that we have to do, of preparation for the week ahead. Peace sounds like an unfamiliar concept to me, something that's foreign. Busy lives, harried lives, frantic lives, anxious lives, tense lives, not-enough-time lives, can't-keep-up lives. My life seems like a blur. And my sense is that we all long for peace. Not world peace, although that would be nice if we could figure out a way to achieve it. Not peace in my relationships with my family and my friends and my colleagues, although that would be nice if we could achieve it. But We long for peace within ourselves, within our own hearts our own minds, our own souls. And in verse 18 of James chapter 3, he talks about peace. Peacemakers. Peacemakers who sow in peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. Christ called us peacemakers. It's part of our identity. Peacemakers is who we are in the world, what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be distributing peace to other men and women, but you can't give away something that you don't have yourself. Peace, peace, and there is no peace. Now peace is one of the most important words in all of Scripture. It has its rich roots in the Old Testament. And to clarify, peace is not what we ordinarily think about. Peace is not the absence of turmoil or difficulty or conflict. Those are all things that are just going to happen because we live life. There's always going to be turmoil. There's always going to be difficulty. There's always going to be conflict. Getting rid of that is not a very realistic goal. But real peace is better than that. Real peace is peace in the midst of turmoil and conflict and difficulty. And real peace is not found in a program or a situation or an institution it's only found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now you've probably heard of the Hebrew word shalom, right? Shalom, you've heard of shalom? Shalom. Shalom is, is this rich word in the Old Testament. It, it, it's, it's about peace. In fact, when I took my Hebrew classes in seminary, uh, the professor would come in and he would greet us all with this word shalom. And our response would be shalom aleichem. So if I was to say to you shalom, you would say At 9 o'clock people were a little better with their Hebrew than you are. I don't know what's going on here. Shalom. Shalom. And now you have no idea what you just said to one another. It's about peace, right? It's about giving each other peace. Shalom means peace. I say peace to you, you say, and peace also to you. It's the way we pass the peace in the New Testament. The peace of Christ be with you and also with you. It's the Old Testament version of that very kind of thing that we do together. The definition of peace is to be whole and healthy and complete, to be whole and healthy and complete. And the means to wholeness, health, and being complete comes through God and in this relationship with Christ. When you greet one another with the word shalom, you are wishing them God's peace, that they will be whole and healthy and complete even in the midst of difficulty or trial or anxiety. True intimacy with Christ is what produces peace. It's connected to the character of God, or as James would say, it's part of this whole idea of maturity. In Psalm 34, the writer says it this way Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. In other words, peace isn't just something that that God puts upon you or plants in your heart, but it has to be pursued. There has to be a means, there's a pathway. To achieving peace. And James says earlier in chapter 3 that there are basically two paths. If you want to experience true shalom in your life, you need to figure out which path you're going to take. There's a path which is the wisdom of the world, and there's a path which is the wisdom of God. And because we're in church, we already figured out that the path that is the wisdom of God, right, leads to real peace. However, it's not the path that we take very often. So James says in verses 14 through 16, If you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. It's the wisdom of the world. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder, right? Selfish ambition and envy of other people does not produce peace. It produces conflict. Now you can can contrast these two roads to peace by looking at their origin and their characteristics and their results. The wisdom of the world has its origin not from above, but it's earthly, it's unspiritual. It's the wisdom of the world, it's our culture. This is the scripture's way of saying that the focus of the wisdom of the world is really on ourselves. We are people who want to be self-actualized. We want to find our own purpose in life for us. We want personal fulfillment and meaning that we're going to find. That's what's most important to us. In a recent poll of college students, a professor asked them to describe the values of our culture. And they came up with this list. That our culture is focused on materialism. We want stuff. That's why we can't park cars in our garages. We want attention, even fame. Thus the popularity of social media. We desire greed and power and status. We're careless about other people, especially people that we don't know. We're, we don't treat people as if they're valuable. 1,100 people shot in the city of Chicago this year already. It's not even halfway through. We don't really value people's lives. And you know, oh, that's in the city. That's their problem. We do the same thing. We just do it differently in the suburbs. Our culture loves temptation. We love to walk out on the thin ice. We love to self-protect. We live in fear. We practice aggression. We harbor envy and pride, and we operate on assumptions. We don't bother to find out. We simply make assumptions about people and judge them based on superficial grounds without really knowing them. This is the way of the world. These are the values of the world, according to college students. And I'm not sure you can argue with many of them, right? This is what you see every day out out there. Out there. That's the way they live out there. So then they were asked a follow-up question. How do you view the church – these were all Christian kids, by the way, at a Christian college – so they grew up in churches. So this is what their view of the church was, is that that people put on a facade at church, that relationships are superficial – Well, not all of them are, but some of them are, many of them are. Most of the time people aren't very sincere. There are plenty of people who are caring. There's one positive thing out of this whole list – it often feels artificial. People are really nice, as in the appearance of peace. People are friendly with other Christians, but not so much to those who are outside of the church. People want to avoid conflict, and so often the truth isn't spoken, because if you don't speak the truth, you're not going to have a conflict with one another. So we just kind of superficially learn how to get along. It's their view of the church. Not a very encouraging word of the church, not a great view of the church, but I'm afraid it's... Pretty realistic view of the church. And then they were asked a third question. Well, if that's your assessment of the world and that's your assessment of the church, why do you think the church is this way? Why do you think the church is so much like the world? Well, the church has other priorities, money, appearance, recognition. We're dishonest with ourselves about these things, about our real priorities in life. We fear persecution by the world. We don't like being unique. We're afraid of the consequences of the truth. We often avoid telling someone else the truth, and we tell ourselves this is because we want to protect their feelings. But we know the real reason is that we don't want to have to deal with the unpleasantness of the situation. We're afraid of facing the fact that we cannot live up to biblical standards. We feel like we can't make a difference in the world, and so why try? now when i first read this list i argued with it right oh that's not true i'm in they don't know this church this church is perfect when we're like jesus all the time here in fact i'm surprised he isn't here all the time if jesus came back he'd worship here <laughs> he worships here every sunday as he does in every other church in the world but then i had to look at the list and go you know what the truth hurts We're not that different than the world. The church isn't necessarily unique. We kind of latch on to in a little bit of a different way. We sanctify the way of the world. And as Jack Nicholson said in a few good men, we can't handle the truth. It's painful. I mean, you ought to work in a profession for 39 years and feel like you've made absolutely no progress. The assumption in that assessment is very harsh. But I can confess to you, and this is the only time people really start to listen to my sermons, is when I say I'm going to confess to you, then you go, oh man, this is going to be good. I mean, I, I have this happen frequently to me, right? I'll hear about what other pastors are doing, I'll listen to what other churches are doing, and I'm going, oh man. I wish that was our church. How come we can't be like that church? How come I'm not as good as that pastor? And then I take the quick turn to, well, they don't have to deal with what I have to deal with every day. They don't have the same environment. They did something different. I mean all these other reasons. So see how quickly we go from, from envy and jealousy to judgment? And that's the wisdom of the world. That's not the wisdom of God. So is there another way? The wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure. And then peace loving. Then considerate and submissive. Full of mercy and good fruit. Impartial and sincere. That's a really good list. And then that verse 18. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now that's the list we want for ourselves, right? Don't we all want to be pure Peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit. We want those qualities and characteristics. And we want the fruit of those things, which is the harvest of righteousness, which essentially means that we're more and more Christ-like. Jesus is known as the Prince of Peace. So if, indeed, we want to follow the wisdom of God, and experience true shalom in our life, it seems to me that we should embrace the teaching of the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. And the wisdom that Jesus taught us did not come through spoken lessons all the time. Most of the time they came through the way he lived. this If you're going to live out God's wisdom in life, live this way. And it's not a real popular way with us. Paul writes this about The wisdom of Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, in your relationships with one another, as a community of people who want to be um, God's source of shining light and living water, in, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who by being the very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself Nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. This is not what you will read in today's newspaper where they list the top 10 best-selling books. You look in the non-fiction section and oftentimes the top 10 best-selling books have ways for people to become successful. None of them recommend dying on a cross for you to be successful. In fact, all of the values that Jesus had turned that list completely upside down. I mean, Jesus said, for us to really live, to experience the kind of life, the abundant life that we really want, to get what we really want out of life, to live, the first thing we have to do is to die to ourselves. Well, what does that mean, to die to ourselves? Well, to set aside all your selfish ambitions, all your priorities that you've established on your own, all the things that you're most important, and look to Jesus and say, now who do you want me to be and what do you want me to be like? To die to ourselves and to live for him. We need to serve other people. He didn't just talk about it, he did it, right? And serving other people means that we are willing to take the lowest job on the totem pole. His most prolific demonstration of what it meant to serve others. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords washed people's feet when they came in to eat the Passover meal. We don't live to be served. We live to serve other people. We need to be humble and not self-promotional. And those are the values that you will not find in today's success manuals. The wisdom of God, God's path to peace, is nonsense to most people. It doesn't make sense. It's not practical. And it won't work out there in today's world. Well, following God's path of wisdom isn't easy, right? It's countercultural. It's not going to make us popular, which is one of our high values in life. It's not even probably going to make us successful by the world's definition, but it will bring us shalom. And the pathway is a singular focus on Jesus Christ, an unwavering passion and love for God and for the building of his kingdom, and regular involvement in spiritual disciplines like worship and prayer and fasting and listening. In a society that thrives on quick fixes and instant gratification and easy methods, this is not a popular road. It is the road less traveled, even by those of us who call ourselves Christ followers. But be very certain of this it is the only road to shalom, it is the only road to wholeness and health and to being complete. Bill Hybels writes about it this way in his book entitled Descending Into Greatness. God makes a hard request to lose so that we can gain. Now for those of you other people who are competitive, that's a tough one right there, right? I don't have a problem with this because I'm not competitive, but losing is not part of my vocabulary but we have to lose so that we can gain. He also offers this promise. Lose your selfish ambition, and I will honor you for loving others. Lose your addiction to things, and I'll provide for you if you seek me wholeheartedly. Lose your obsession to be in control, and I will give you power as you follow me. Lose your appetite for thrills and I'll startle you with pleasures that you could have never found on your own. Lose your life and I will give you eternity. Eternal life now, the most, the most fulfilling life you have now, not just in the future, but now. Now most of us have at least heard of St. Augustine. Christian leader, lived in the 300s, has written one of the great foundational books of Christianity called Confessions. It's his own confessions. But St. Augustine was not a saint his whole life. In fact, early on in adulthood, he lived a life of immorality and kind of wild living, had a child out of wedlock, and he just didn't live the kind of life that his mother, who was a very devout Christian, was very proud of, and all she could do was stand on the side and pray. He had a child out of wedlock, which put him as an outcast, with a woman who was from a different class than he was, which was back in that day unheard of. They never married, and his son died. And after that son died, Augustine was never really the same. In his confessions, he writes about one turning point in his life. I was asking myself questions, weeping all the while with the most bitter sorrow in my heart, when all at once I heard the sing-song voice of a child in a nearby house. Whether it was the voice of a boy or a girl, I cannot say, but again and again it repeated the refrain. Take it and read. Take it and read. At this I looked up, thinking hard whether there was any kind of game that children played where they chanted words like these, but I could not remember ever hearing them before. I stemmed the flood of my tears and I stood up, telling myself that this could only be a divine command to open my scripture and read the first passage that I laid my eyes on. Following this hunch, Augustine opened to Romans 13, verses 13 and 14. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. And from that moment on, Augustine chose a different path, a different road. Rather than the wisdom of the world, he chose the wisdom of God. And later he described that encounter this way. I had looked for pleasure, beauty, and truth, not in him, but in myself and his other creatures. And that search led me instead to pain and confusion and error Augustine had discovered the indispensable truth that the creature can find rest and peace only in the creator. And in what is probably his most famous quotation, Augustine declared to God through prayer, God in heaven, you made us for yourself and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Have you ever wondered about all this crazy scrambling that we and others do? You know, trying to find that brass ring that brings contentment, that means fulfillment, that brings us meaning and purpose in life. I mean, Prince died a couple years ago, right? I mean, a couple weeks ago. He died a couple weeks ago. Here was a man who was phenomenally talented, who had plenty of money didn't need anything more but as you continue to read about his life and his death don't you get the sense that he just never really knew any peace with himself or the world and he was striving and striving and searching and searching and he never found the path Or he never embraced the path. The way of the world produces anxiety and tension and frustration and selfishness. It's just not the way of peace. Can we keep up? Can we measure up? Can we put up? Can we live up? Or can we lose ourselves? so that we can actually find ourselves. And so the last thing I want to say to you this morning is this. Shalom. Yeah, the yellow part means you respond. Shalom. Let us pray. Yeah, it it would be honest for us to say, oh Lord, that we really, really want to be your children, and we want to reflect your values, and we want to know the kind of peace that passes all understanding. But we also would confess, Lord, that we're easily distracted. We're bombarded with messages from every corner of the world to embrace the way of the world and the wisdom of the world. Give us the strength to resist, the courage to be different, and the hearts to embrace your will and your way. In the name of our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Before we uh, worship with our tithes and offerings, there's just one uh, quick announcement. If you are new here or been around for a while, would like to know more about our church or become a member of our congregation, uh, we encourage you to attend a series of classes that begin on May 24. That's a Tuesday night, 6.30. Uh, There'll be three... Uh, classes in a row on three consecutive Tuesdays, the 24th the 31st and June 7. Um, you can come and be a part of that. If you are going to come it would be great for us to know that you're coming so we can expect you and have enough material you can call the office or email us and let us know that you want to do that. Um, let us now worship with our tithes and offerings and may we be as generous with what God has given to us as he's been to us.